This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Wednesday marked the first day of Stage 2 reopening in Toronto, Mississauga and Brampton. But what are the risks of enjoying a meal on a restaurant patio or getting a haircut? The daily COVID-19 cases in Ontario continue to hover below 200, but people are still dying after testing positive for the virus. Tuesday, we learned about the first death of a child with COVID-19, though we are told she died with the virus, not because of it. Over the last few weeks, we have seen a troubling trend, an increase in the number of young people becoming infected. It's not surprising as the long-term care tragedy starts to come under control while young people begin to throw caution to the restrictions by seeing friends and having fun together. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss on Wednesday, Dr. Ray Dianandin, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist with the University Health Network. There's a few explanations that could be contributing, likely it's a combination of all of them. One could be that younger people are now more aware, having been uh, five months into the epidemic, of the importance of going out and getting tested. And so more more awareness has led to more testing among, among that group. The second element may be, as you mentioned earlier, also that uh, the restrictions on young people may not have been as effective or they may have not have perceived as restrictions to be as important. It's hard to know, but that perhaps can also contribute to the possibility that more of them are positive. In general, young people will have easier access to testing because they're more mobile and uh, you know more able to get to the testing centers. So they will also be tested more often in certain in certain areas where testing has become very broadly available to them. So that may be why why uh, more young people have tested positive recently. Dr. Dionandin, what's your take on this? That's exactly right. To think about this as an epidemiologist, there are going to be real reasons and biased reasons. So some of the biased reasons have to do with how we deploy the testing. For example, as we're testing less and less symptomatic people, you're going to get more young people who tend not to show symptoms. As well, the older people are being more cautious now, and so they're being less represented in the data stream. So on balance, you're going to see uh, a heightened weight of young people in the median age category. So I'm not entirely surprised. It doesn't necessarily mean that young people are going out and getting infected at a larger rate, but it might mean that. This last weekend, we saw here in Toronto on Cherry Beach, scenes that looked like they were out of Florida with uh, young people crowded in. And even in places where going to the beach was allowed and legal uh, and there was some physical distancing, you know, it didn't, didn't, you know, it looked, like hmm, that might be a, a dangerous situation. Yeah, the interesting thing about those observations that people are more are concerned about the distances between groups, uh, like you and another group of strangers. What's more concerning is actually between you and the people within your group, because it's likely that when you see groups of people at the beach, that the people that they're with are not likely. They may be within their bubble, but they may not be. 
So it's, it's that it's that part that's actually more conservative. Even when you create these circles and parks or beaches or wherever, that's actually not not the primary way to deal with the problem, because it's the people within those circles who may be exposing each other who are not, uh, you know, not within the bubble. That's, that's the term that's been used to describe like the, the minimization of the chain of transmission. So uh, that really is a concerning aspect of seeing those kinds of things. But now that the transmission, now that the prevalence is lower, it's less and less of a concern. I've asked this question before, and I seem to be getting contradictory answers. I see a lot of people with the mask sort of down around their chin or their neck, and then they put it back up. Is that okay or not? I'll go first on this one, if you don't mind. My my position is, early on in the mask debate, it was positioned as PPE, as personal protective equipment, and so we're very concerned about not spreading infection via the mask. We're at the stage now where a mask is a transmission a mitigation device. So in my opinion, it doesn't matter if your mask is poorly attended while you're not using it. What matters is when you are using it, is it covering your mouth and your nose? You're trying to prevent the stuff from leaving your mouth and entering the world. And if enough people do this at a population level, it scales up as diminished community transmission. Okay, but you're not going to give yourself something bad by pulling the mask down and then pulling it back up again. I don't think so, no. Dr. Vaisman, you agree? Uh, yeah, I think that generally speaking, that's true that you're not going to infect yourself. The exception would be that if you're in like a higher risk setting, like in hospitals, we don't, uh, we ask healthcare workers to either have the mask completely off when they're eating or drinking, for example, or going to the washroom, but, uh, and then have it completely on when they're attending to care. So in the vast majority of your interactions in the public, having your mask half off isn't going to be too much of a big deal. Uh, my general recommendation is just to take it off completely and place it somewhere clean and dry so that it doesn't get contaminated somewhere. Like, But uh, overall, the risk is probably low, even if you don't do that. Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist with the University Health Network, and Dr. Ray Dionandin, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Restaurant, bar, and salon owners in Toronto and Peel are certainly feeling some relief as many of them get back to work after a a three-and-a-half-month lockdown. But there are stringent new rules for staff and customers since the COVID-19 pandemic is nowhere near over. Also joining Libby on day one of stage two reopening, Dat Tran, owner of Album Hair, and Trevor Brody, director of operations at Amsterdam Brewhouse. I think Torontonians are excited to uh, add something a little bit different to their routine after the the past three months. So, you know, we're looking forward to it. Um, Obviously not the best weather, but uh, it's looking pretty good this weekend. Are you full now or... No, we're not full. We still got tons of room for uh, for guests to join us. Uh, we do think probably uh, after work around five o'clock, we'll start uh, filling up pretty quickly. By the way, I asked the mayor this, and he didn't have an answer. So you you can serve on the patio. What happens right. if there's a downpour? When that happens, what ha- what happens? Well, in my experience, um, it definitely does rain in Toronto, but there's never been a day where it's rained nonstop for us. So. You know, if it means we got to put up our patio umbrellas and, and uh, you know, every table has an umbrella, they can hide underneath that. But the storms seem to pass fairly quickly. And I think that people have a great understanding that as restaurateurs, we control a lot of things, but unfortunately, we cannot control the weather. 
Okay. Dat Tran, what's your day been like? It's been actually, uh, how would I describe this? Amazing, to say the least, that we're such in, you know, a demand and there's such a need for it. Overwhelming with the support of the community is I'm very grateful for. Are you fully booked? Yes, we are. Um, we're like, you know, we do have some new stars that joined us prior to this. So they're fresh. There's still a few openings for them, but it's slowly booking up. We have been prepared, like all our guests on our waiting list prior to reopening already. Can I ask how long you're booked up for? I've heard of hairdressers who are booked up for a month. It, it all varies on what service you're looking for. I mean, with balayage and color service, it requires a lot longer of time for the service. So the hairstylists that are skillful with that, they are fully booked. And then we have our stylists just specialize in cuts. So they're slowly being pre-booked all the way to, I think, November, October. (laughs) Well, um, and is that going to be enough for you to, to make up some of the losses you've had in the last, what, three months? I don't think there's ever enough, but I'm just excited just to be back and be just, I think the interaction with another human being is, you know, the conversation that you get to share with your guests. I think that's more important for myself. You know, making them feel good is another thing that, you know, I'm very fortunate to be doing. So, yeah. Trevor, what are the measures that you had to put in place to to meet the requirements? How long did it take to do it? And, and how much did it cost you? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, given our size of our establishments, um, they, there's definitely a cost there. You know, the minimum requirements were six feet between each edge of table, um, you know, socially distance your line through markers. But I think the city of Toronto did a good job with their, their recommendations as well. So we're following all those. And then we've probably layered on close to probably about 75 additional measures from, you know, volume of music. So people aren't talking loudly to spread uh, germs to, you know, really. What is it louder? Our... I'm sorry. Is the music louder? I know it's a lot quieter. Oh, good. Um, That's good. <laughs> yeah, people... we don't like loud music. <laughs> there you we... go. So, yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a lot of different measures. I mean, we're learning a lot from from around the world right now as everybody's in this together. So, there's been best practices come out of Las Vegas to Australia, um, and the big thing for us is, you know, unfortunately, we've seen other markets, uh, other countries who have loosened their restrictions and then had to tighten them back up again, and that's the last thing that we need or want. Trevor Brody, Director of Operations at Amsterdam Brewhouse, and Dat Tran, owner of Album Hair. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. If you've been on the road lately, you've probably noticed that suddenly there is traffic again. It's not quite back to normal, but it's certainly a change from the empty roads that drivers have gotten used to during the COVID-19 lockdown. What's it going to be like for motorists with more cars on the road? Libby Snymer was joined this week by OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt of the Highway Safety Division. 
everyone is looking forward to what a new change, maybe uh, the vision of what the future might look like. And uh, summer and everything else is going on into school. Who knows? This is such a time of transition right now, isn't it? What have you noticed uh, the last, uh, actually the last couple of weeks, I've noticed gradual building of more traffic. And, and in some places, it's almost back to the way it was. Well, you're right. Uh, you know, I've been caught in some congestion, some uh, traffic jams and so on, lots of construction going on, and uh, traffic volume is certainly building. And, you know, right through the middle of March when things kind of shut down, uh, we still had a lot of transportation, a lot of trucking traffic, a lot of deliveries, essential workers were out there. Obviously, the the, the vast majority of uh, traffic that you're used to was not there. Uh, school traffic, obviously not there at all and uh, made a huge difference uh, in terms of traffic volumes being much lighter. And now, over the last month or so, we certainly have seen a steady increase in vehicle traffic, uh, truck traffic, commercial traffic, and passenger vehicle traffic as well. And I can only uh, imagine that as of today and this week and and in the next uh, coming weeks, we're going to get back to some normalcy. I know typically... July and August are always a lot lighter in traffic than uh, through the uh, the schooling months. So uh, we always would see a drop in traffic volumes as soon as uh, graduation hits, and I guess that's probably now. Uh, but uh, with the uh, changes with the uh, traffic, obviously getting back to uh, an increased level, we're going to see a lot more traffic. Uh, not to not to the extent I don't think of. Uh, regular rush hour mid uh, uh, mid February traffic, but it certainly will be busy. Now, yesterday we were doing a, a piece on auto insurance, and the volume of crashes has been a lot less. So, would you expect that to change as more people get on the road? And 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 you agree with my observation that there are a fair number of people who you know got used to having the road to themselves and, and um, you know, doing things that are not according to oil. Well, for sure. And uh, we certainly have seen that. And I can tell you, since the middle of March, the OPP have uh, charged and ticketed about 3,500 people with street racing or dangerous driving. That's about 30 cars a day being taken wow. off the road across the province. Now, just in the GTA, we do about 10 of those every single day. And uh, when we talk about street racing, stunt driving, aggressive driving, dangerous driving, those kinds of behaviors, we typically would see them in the evenings, late at night, on the weekends. But now we have been seeing them a lot more throughout the day, midweek, middle of the afternoon, when you wouldn't expect that, and when typically the highways would not accommodate that kind of uh, speeds and that kind of uh, uh, traffic on the highways. That is uh, certainly been a concern for us. And as we look forward to the July Canada Day long weekend, we're going to be out obviously focusing on safety equipment, uh, uh, safe driving, safe behaviors on the roads, on the trails, on the waterways. And as much as everyone is anxious to get out, and either go shopping or go to your favorite restaurant, uh, patio, uh, or store, whatever that might be, a service, uh, please just keep in mind the rules of the road are there for everyone, and we need people to uh, consider their actions, and we don't want to see people getting hurt needlessly 
because of someone's uh, uh, enthusiasm and carelessness out on the road. OPP Sergeant Carrie Schmidt in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. A new Canadian Civil Liberties report reveals Canadians have been confronted by an ugly ticketing pandemic with enforcement officers engaging in racial profiling and other concerning practices. In a 37-page study called Stay Off the Grass, COVID-19 and Law Enforcement in Canada, the rights watchdog calculates 10,000 tickets were issued between April 1st and June 15th. Quebec, the province hardest hit by the new coronavirus, accounts for two-thirds of charges and three-quarters of the nation's $13 million in fines. By comparison, there were just over 2,800 charges in Ontario, which make up less than one-fifth of the fines levied across the country. On Thursday, Libby was joined by Abby Deshman, Director of Criminal Justice at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and author of the report. So we found uh, about 10,000 COVID-related tickets were laid in in, uh, just over 100 days, uh, which is really an enormous number of tickets. That's over $13 million in fines. And when you look at where uh, these tickets were issued, the vast majority of them, 98% of that $13 million, um, comes down to just three provinces, Quebec, Ontario, and Nova Scotia. Uh Uh, So really disproportionate charging in those provinces. Um, When we look at, you know, BC, for example, that absolutely had a very concerning beginning uh, to this pandemic, really uh, a fast curve upwards in BC in terms of their infection rates. We just don't see the same law enforcement response. They didn't uh, empower their bylaw officers and their police officers to go out and and hand out punitive fines. Uh, It's really been a decision that Quebec, Ontario, and Nova Scotia have made to respond to the pandemic uh, with law enforcement policing stops uh, and very heavy fines. And I remember some of those fines, and it was at the height of the pandemic when things like, uh, you know, the the swings in parks and and off leash dog parks and all kinds of things were off limits. And some of those fines were very hefty. They were seven and eight hundred dollars and more. Yep, that's exactly it. It's eight hundred and eighty dollars uh, once you get everything in in Ontario, fifteen hundred dollars in Quebec, uh, several hundred in Nova Scotia. So um, really crushing fines, especially at times when individuals and families are facing incredible financial strain. Um, and uh, the types of things that people were ticketed for, you know, we've been inviting Canadians to get in touch with us with their experiences of enforcement. We don't have a picture of every single ticket, of course, but I can tell you the dozens and dozens of people who got in touch with us from across the country are telling us stories of very minor uh, infractions or even sometimes we can't even figure out what they did wrong. But, you know, things like my kid um, in an open park uh, ran ahead and jumped up on the picnic bench uh, for five seconds before I called him back. Uh, And the bylaw officer said it was a zero tolerance and that was an $880 ticket or a a 17-year-old walking down a path in Halifax that had specifically been flagged open by the municipality. A police officer disagreed, um, issued him hundreds of dollars of tickets. Uh, 
uh, in Quebec, we're hearing from grassroots organizations that work with the indigenous population um, that their clients, the majority of whom are uh, homeless or precariously housed, are receiving a lot of increased attention from police and many, many physical distancing infractions because they're just out in public space so much and they have really reduced uh, services and supports at this time because a lot of these community organizations that help those populations are closed. So when we have examples of places in Canada that have effectively confronted this public health crisis using education and a public health response, uh, these types of tickets and particularly impacts on marginalized populations just don't seem necessary and uh, really raise equality and human rights concerns. This was all at the height of the pandemic. Uh, did you follow whether it was, you know, perhaps an overreaction at really at the height of things and has it subsided? Yeah, I think it has subsided. We don't have really solid figures, but certainly in places like Toronto and Ottawa, we've seen a much more measured approach recently. We've seen warnings handed out at beaches that are too crowded instead of tickets. Uh, we've seen, for example, the city go out and paint social distancing circles on the grass at popular downtown parks to allow people to actually see, is this park full in the COVID area? Um, so, uh, I think we have adopted it. Uh, we've learned. Some places have learned. Uh, what we are looking to is a possible second wave, right? Um, we are concerned that if COVID t- cases start to tick back up, that governments and law enforcement officials may fall back on the punitive approach that really does undermine public health, especially for the most marginalized communities. Uh, and that's what we don't want to see. We know that BC effectively flattened the curve without it. Uh, Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia can as well. Libby Snymer in conversation with Abby Deshman, Director of Criminal Justice at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Ernest in Mississauga called to say, as someone who drives for a living, mutual respect on the roads needs to be mandatory. I don't think enough is being done to to reduce the number of accidents on, on the road. Um, I, I am a driver. I make my living on the road. I'm 12 hours a day, Monday to Friday, on the road. And the number of accidents I see on the road seriously scares me. Uh, the road is becoming a very dangerous place. I see a lot of people doing actually stupid things on on the road. I, I operate on the principle that all accidents are preventable. Um, being accident-free is no accident because I'm a driver. I live on the road. The, the road is my workplace. So, and I don't think enough is being done to reduce the number of accidents, or is there's not enough severe punishment to people who break, willingly break the law like that. Liz in Norfolk called about what she sees as a lack of interest in restrictions around COVID-19. I'm sure you realize that in Norfolk County, we've had a number of deaths in the farm workers. Yes. Um, it doesn't seem to be hitting home here with anybody, uh, even the older people. I had the misfortune of having to take a cab uh, last week, uh, twice. The one gentleman in the cab was at least 60 years old. The second time I took a cab, uh, the young woman was in her mid-30s. I asked them, uh, why didn't they have any hand sanitizer or wearing a mask or anything? The comment was, we don't have to and we don't think it's a problem. 
Well, I'm sitting there in the cab in the middle of the afternoon, and I'm sure there's been a number of people in the cab before me. And the cab drivers don't have to take precautions. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Verna in Oakville, who called us back after her first two visits to see her husband, Bruce, who's been in a nursing home lockdown due to COVID-19. Yesterday, I went to deliver a Father's Day card to the reception to be given to Bruce, and I didn't actually do a window visit, but I looked, because it was lunchtime, I looked through the window and I saw all the residents in the unit. And I have to say, I was so shocked at the deterioration of all of them. And Bruce was being, two caregivers walked him in and tried to get him to sit down, but he's seems to have lost the ability to know how to sit down. So I was really shocked with that. But I noticed such a dramatic deterioration yesterday especially. But when I saw him as well at the visit outside, I noticed he was very frail and he had a blank, you know, when he wasn't actually interacting with me, um, he had a blank affect, you know, his face was blank. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636, I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.